Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, our weekly roundtable is back. Our guests are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. A lot going on in the world uh, from the anniversary of the war in Iraq, 20 years anniversary. Also, protests have busted out in Israel as well as France. And uh, President Xi of China and Putin of Russia met recently. A lot of realignment going on. Meanwhile, Trump is Trump in trouble, in more trouble in the United States. Well, our panelists will select the story that they will want to cover. So let's see how that goes. And this is your host, of course, Margaret Prescott. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The U.S. has launched airstrikes in Syria, killing at least 11 people, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, an opposition war monitor. The Pentagon says the precision strikes were in retaliation of a suspected Iranian-made drone that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded five American troops and another contractor. The strikes. The U.S. strikes hit three separate cities and reportedly targeted facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The deadly exchange threatens to upend recent efforts to de-escalate tensions across the Middle East, whose rival powers have made steps towards detente in recent days against years of turmoil. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement the American intelligence Intelligence community had determined the drone was of Iranian origin, but offered no other evidence to support the claim. The strike comes after U.S. lawmakers failed to pass a war powers resolution to withdraw some 900 troops from Syria. Syria's civil war between U.S.-backed Turkish and rebel opposition forces and Russian and Iranian-backed government have killed some 300,000 civilians since the war began in 2015. Israel's Attorney General is warning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he violated the Supreme Court's conflict of interest ruling for negotiating a law that would shield him from the high court amidst a corruption trial Netanyahu's undergoing. Today's warning comes as Netanyahu's far-right ruling coalition passed a law that would protect him from being deemed unfit to rule because of his corruption trial and claims of a conflict of interest led by the nation's highest court. The move has sparked widespread civil unrest across Israel, and it's followed Netanyahu as he visits the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, in London today. The AP's Charles de la Desma reports. Well, Mr. Netanyahu, your own attorney general says you're breaking the law. Netanyahu's visit to London comes as Israel faces a national crisis over his government's plans to overhaul the judicial system. 
As thousands of people took to the streets of Israeli cities on Thursday, Netanyahu, who's on trial for corruption, has defiantly pledged to proceed with the overhaul, which gives Israel's most right-wing coalition in history more control over judicial appointments, weakens the Supreme Court by limiting judicial review of legislation, and allows Parliament to overturn court decisions with a simple majority. I'm Charles Diladesma. In the U.S., the CEO of TikTok faced a grilling from lawmakers in a five-hour hearing on the controversial social media app. Some lawmakers are proposing a ban on the company, which is in part based in China, over concerns the app could be weaponized by the Chinese Communist Party to collect private data, spread misinformation, or even influence a presidential election. Christopher Martinez has more. In his opening statement, TikTok CEO Sho Chu said TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is not owned or controlled by the Chinese government, but rather is private, based in Los Angeles and Singapore. And he added TikTok is not even available in China. Chu offered several commitments to the committee and TikTok users. Number one, we will keep safety, particularly for teenagers, as a top priority for us. Number two, we will firewall protected U.S. data from unwanted foreign access. Number three, TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. And fourth, we will be transparent and we will give access to third-party independent monitors to remain accountable for our commitments. There's no real evidence that TikTok has ever shared data with the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, but concerns are widespread. Republican Congressmember Michael McCall of Texas recently called TikTok a spy balloon in your phone. Chu's testimony did not appear to sway any minds on the Commerce Committee, where taking on TikTok seemed almost a surrogate for confronting China. I'm Christopher Martinez. The Nebraska legislature has voted to advance a contentious bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors. The vote came despite threats from some lawmakers they would filibust the rest of the session in protest. Meanwhile, Georgia will ban most gender-affirming surgeries and hormone replacement therapies for transgender people under the age of 18, with a new bill signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp Thursday. Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds has signed a pair of laws restricting the bathrooms transgender students can use and banning gender-affirming medical care. The World Athletics Council has voted to ban transgender track and field athletes from international competition. The council also adopted new regulations that could keep other athletes with differences in sex development from competing. In a pair of decisions expected to stoke outrage, the World Athletics Council adopted the same rules as swimming did last year in deciding to bar athletes who have transitioned from male to female and have gone through male puberty. No such athletes currently compete at the highest elite levels of track. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And our regular panelists of our weekly roundtable are back. I'd like to welcome them now. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international 
feminist organization. Laura is based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thanks very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be back. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie, welcome back. Good to be with you. It's been quite a week for us here in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'll bet, and you likely will want to share some of that with us, Jackie. I will do so. Yes, Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. Um, his book, The Counter Revolution of 1836, is his latest, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S fascism. His other projects include a study of U.S. imperialism in Northeast Africa, principally Egypt and Ethiopia in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and a, and a similar study concerning U.S. imperialism in Southeast Asia during the same period. Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. So uh, what we're going to do now, uh, today's roundtable, uh, a little different uh, format than we usually do because our panelists haven't been with us for some time. So they are actually going to, in each of three rounds, uh, select a story that they would like to cover. Uh, but just looking at the headlines, of course, we know um, the um anniversary of the war of Iraq, uh, if you call it such, 20 years ago. The Wall Street Journal has an article calling it the tragedy of Iraq 20 years old, 20 years on. Israel, mass protests are going on. Listening to some of the sound uh, from those protests, you would think that, you know, you are in the global south somewhere or perhaps even Palestinians protesting, but these are Israelis in Israel are protesting. Um, we'll find out a likely, uh, I, I'm hoping Jackie will uh, discuss some of that with us. And uh, President Xi of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia uh, just finished up a round of talks. Um, and one headline says that they pledge to shape a new world order okay and of course france is also blowing up uh protests going on a million people on the streets the city hall of uh bordeaux was set on fire um president biden is about to meet with trudeau of canada haiti is on the agenda and then breaking news a drone attack apparently killed a u.s contractor in syria and the u.s uh, responded with some airstrikes. There's a lot going on. I'm not sure if our panelists will select any of those stories. Um, but Laura, let's start with you because you may want to comment on the Iraq uh, war, for example, anniversary. But let's 
let's see what you have in mind, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do want to comment on that because I think there's a lot of still unlearned lessons that we have. But I wanted to start out with one that hasn't been mentioned, which is a particular concern because it's the latest climate change report from the Intergovernmental Panel of Scientists on Climate Change. Uh, the latest report came out just a few days ago. It, there are no real surprises because these kinds of dire science-based reports have been coming out now for quite some time. But the concern is that it tends to be now a blip in the media. And in, as far as policy goes, we're seeing not only a lack of serious and coordinated policy attention to the matter, which of course is, and now they've proven it with the latest report, uh, affects all of our lives in different ways, but also that uh, there's, there's, they're going forward with precisely the types of measures that have caused climate change and that will continue to cause climate change. Some of the findings in that report are that it's projected that the CO2 to emissions from existing fossil fuel infrastructure without additional abatement would exceed the remaining carbon budget for 1.5% Celsius rise. Um, that's considered a highly likely and very dangerous scenario. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that he's proposed a G20 climate solidarity pact. So that would be between the most polluting historically and presently nations in the world, the highly developed capitalist nations. But again, it's a voluntarist measure uh, that of the type that capitalism has consistently refused and particularly driven by the oil and gas industries. The report even more strongly then past reports has put the blame squarely on human activities, saying that human activities, principally through emissions of greenhouse gases, have unequivocally caused global warming. There it is. And in that sense, they've also mentioned fossil fuels specifically far more than was done in the past when there was a kind of a euphemistic um, approach to this. And in that context, the report makes it clear that there should be no new oil, gas, or coal project financing. And here we have President Biden's approval of the Willow project in the Arctic for oil and gas. John Kerry was just recently in Mexico looking at some of the, um, at some of the clean energy projects, and uh, there's a big critique here in Mexico against even those because they're being built along the mega project corporate model, which has both environmental impacts and social impacts that are negative. But also he was very much endorsing the president of Mexico who's gone all out for oil and gas development as part of a nationalist agenda to take control of energy sovereignty. So we're not seeing the message getting through at all. The recommendations are to close coal down completely, to have clean energy investment, decarbonize buildings and the cement, steel and plastics, have pub public transportation, biking and walking. There's a whole series. Another one is to change diet and eat plants, not meat. There's a calculation in the report that food systems account for one third of the global admissions emissions. But what we're not seeing is a recommendation to reduce consumption 
we're not seeing the kinds of strategies that would challenge the capitalist model that has led us to this point. So the other point that's very clear within, within the report is the different, differential impact. It says vulnerable communities who've historically contributed the least to current climate change are disproportionately affected. Minorities, women, people from developing country, low-income people are paying the highest price. That increasing weather and climate extreme events have exposed millions of people to acute food secure insecurity and reduced water security with the largest adverse impacts in locations and or communities in Africa, Asia, Central and South America, South America, small islands and the Arctic and globally for indigenous peoples, small scale food producers and low income households. We're seeing this have a constant impact now on our work with organizations of women in other parts of the world. We've been working with the movement in Malawi and first of all, uh, saw them have to face They've been building up food production projects on a small scale, organizing, and they had to face the storms last year. And now Cyclone Freddy has hit with a highly unusual pattern of behavior that's almost certainly related directly to climate change. So this is no longer an abstract issue. This is no longer just another scientific report saying the same thing. It's something that is directly affecting our lives and especially the youth. In that sense, the lawsuit filed by Montana youth saying that the state was violating its own constitutional with the right to a healthy environment by, by promoting oil and gas projects um, is a healthy reminder that we all have a role to play to this and that it's time for everyone and not just policymakers to speak up much more loudly, much more forcefully and in an organized manner, because this is the path to destruction. Absolutely. And uh, Laura, uh, so glad you raised that. Uh, a couple of things here for those of you who might have missed the shows on, on environment this week. Uh, there was a discussion about uh, trying to stop in the northeast of the U.S., the cutting down of old growth trees to replace them with young trees. Old growth trees, of course, store much more carbon, uh, for example. And then a, a, a small but significant victory to support early in the week. We had some guests on talking about a battle going on to save um, the desert, uh, the high desert in, in California, there was a proposal by some deep pocket developers to build a 106 room hotel right smack in the middle of a small rural desert community. Um, that's also a wildlife corridor and would uh, forever uh, change the the atmosphere, the terrain threatened, the dark skies, et cetera, in that community. It's a community of Wonder Valley. And yesterday, the San Bernardino Planning Commission rejected the proposal from the um, from the developers, uh, from a small community of about a thousand people, hundreds of letters went in and about close to 50 people uh, testified against the project. There were nine people 
who supported the project. They didn't speak, but they sent in nine letters. So Laura, we know that communities around the world are standing up and fighting back as they as they can. So thank you for uh, selecting that particular topic. And Jackie Goldberg, we'll go to you next. What would you like to do for your first round story? Well, I think I, think I want to take up the Israeli demonstrations and the difficulty going on in Israel over the attempt of Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's far, far, far right government. And I can't say that enough. Far, far right government. It seems to be just interested only in protecting Netanyahu. You know, I think the thing that people don't realize is that a half a million Israelis have joined the protest. That's that's unbelievable for 10 consecutive weeks, right? 10 weeks to try to stop Netanyahu's far right government from doing undoing the democracy that they've had. You have to understand that when you have a half a million Israeli taking to the streets and a population of over 9 million, that's about 5% of all the Israelis. And Half of the protesters, about a quarter of a million of them, were in Tel Aviv. And you can see, if you go on any media, you can see the enormous strikes that are going on. And what's really going on is very simple. There's a package of legislation that would give Israeli's parliament, which is called the Knesset, the power to overrule Supreme Court decisions. Now, what kind of Supreme Court decisions do they want to overrule? Well, the Supreme Court has said no to some settlements that Israelis want to have, uh, taking over more and more of Palestinian uh, West Bank areas. And and the Supreme Court has said, no, that's illegal. We can't do that. Uh, so they want to be able, this government says, no, 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 we, want, we, we need more settlements. We need to get rid of more uh, Palestinians and put more Israelis in there. And so we can give the uh, Knesset a simple majority vote and that will overturn these kinds of things. The second thing they want to do is to change how judges are nominated. Currently, that rests with a committee, and that committee is composed of judges and legal experts and politicians, but it would remove the power and independence from government ministries, legal advisors, and take away the power of the court to invalidate unreasonable government appointments, as the high court did uh, in January. Uh, when it said that the fire and interior health minister, Ari Derry, was not appropriate. So they're, they're trying to stop the uh, Supreme Court from acting as a, a blunt to the far right's dreams of, of simply uh, kicking out literally all Palestinians from Israel and changing all of this. But really the biggest motivation, you wanna know the biggest motivation? The biggest motivation is, is that he's pushing legislation that will make it impossible for him to be removed from office when he loses his corruption trials he's currently facing. And that's really the motivation. Now, you need to know that Israel doesn't have a written constitution, but it has a set of what's called basic laws. And these basic laws are include this separation of the Supreme Court from being governed by the Knesset. And that's what they're trying to undo, because uh, interestingly enough, in polling, at least uh, two out of three, about 66 percent uh, of the Israelis believe, believe the Supreme Court should have the power to strike down laws that, that, that don't meet Israel's, quote, basic laws. 
The only thing the government cares about, it seems, is crushing Israeli democracy. That's from Prime Minister Yair Lapid. But here's some of the things that are happening that are unusual uh, in Israel. For example, the, uh, the uh, defense minister of Israel um, is now threatening uh, to, uh, uh, to um, uh, disagree publicly with the uh, goals of the so-called judicial review. And that's very unusual. He's a Likud, Likud party member. He is uh, a part of the government, and an important part because he is a part of the um, of the of the of the plans of the government uh, to use a military. But he has said, uh, 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 "This is Gallant, by the way, Yoav Gallant." has said that he wants to call for a stop to the plans in the name of maintaining order in the military ranks. Now, that's an interesting notion, because there are now a growing number of young men and women who say when they get their call, as long as this is going on, we're not going to do it. Uh, so they have a wave of Israelis who've signed pledges not to heed a call-up for military duty if these reforms proceed. That, I don't believe, has ever happened before, and certainly not ever to Netanyahu. So Gallant is trying to find another way of doing this. But that doesn't stop Netanyahu. He went on radio and television and said, oh, no, but believe me, we're really not trying to make anything problem. We just want a responsible judicial system. So this is, this is a real problem. In the meantime, here at home, the Anti-Defamation League has now published a new list of top anti-Israeli groups, but it includes groups like J Street, and it includes groups uh, like Code Pink, and these are groups that uh, are, and also it even includes the Muslim Public Affairs Council, which recognizes Israel and supports a two-state solution. So there's pressure in America to uh, keep uh, groups, uh, Jewish and Arab groups that are critical of all of what's going on from having their voices heard. I think since ADL has been so important in fighting uh, against Semitism in the United States, I think this is a very short-sighted and unproductive uh, part on their part. But this is the continuous battle in both American Jewish politics and Israeli politics, which is you know, can you can you treat Palestinians <clears throat> in in unequal ways? Can you steal property? Can you, <clears throat> pardon me, take in, take over settlements? Can you bring uh, your your troops into uh, as they have been at uh, at Alaska at, at, to uh, to to find so-called uh, people planning problems and and attack uh, people that gets not only so-called militants, but also plain old civilians killed. This is a very difficult time in Israeli history. And if the far-right government is successful, I believe that the new group called uh, Grandmothers for uh, Democracy in Israel will become a lot stronger and bigger along with all the protests. The protests are not going away. This is not going to stop. And uh, when you have two-thirds of the country saying that the so-called judicial overhaul is unlawful and they're against it, uh, Netanyahu has to worry a bit, I hope. And I hope that somebody like his defense minister, Gallant, will make some pressure on him as well. But this is truly a, an important, crucial time in Israeli political history.
Wow, Grandmothers for Democracy in, in Israel. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And the, the, interestingly enough, the Washington Post has an article about a secretive Israeli think tank behind Netanyahu's uh, judicial overhaul, the Kohelet, I think they're called, and they're actually funded by um, a, a, a U.S. billionaire, who knows who that is. But they're also saying that in February, Mike Pompeo, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, and a few others um, met for a three-day conference alongside Netanyahu and this same uh, right-wing Kohelet uh, researchers um, and Tom Cotton, of course, saying when we support our friends, not only do we uh, we also protect our interests or something along those lines. So, uh, you know, they're standing alongside uh, people who have um, helped to push the very policies, uh, Jackie, that yeah. you just described and people are protesting about. So we'll mm -hmm. see how that how that goes. Uh, before we go to our station break, though, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, the story you would like to select for your first round. President Xi of China was in Moscow for three days uh, earlier this week. You suggested in your opening remarks that newspaper headlines are trumpeting that this may be the beginning of a new world order, which suggests the profundity uh, of this visit and also harkens back to the visit a half century ago by President Nixon to China, which allowed China and the United States to unite on an anti-Soviet basis, which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union about two decades later, inaugurated an era of unipolarity, speaking of U.S. domination. And then the question today is whether or not that particular epic is coming to a close, and whether or not this visit by President Xi's singles signals this new world order. Certainly, there is going to be tightening of relations between Moscow and Beijing, which calls into question the proxy war in Ukraine. Certainly, there's going to be increased use of the Chinese currency and bilateral trade between the two giants, and whether or not that will spread raises questions about the continued hegemony of the U.S. dollar. I should also mention that uh, President Lula of Brazil is due in China for a five-day visit in a few days. This signals the importance of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which is an alternative pole to the U.S.-dominated uh, group of seven uh, that includes Canada and the Western European nations and Japan. Likewise, there is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a counterpoint to the U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, I should also mention that it's not clear if the Western European nations, particularly France and Germany, will be on board with regard to this new Cold War against China. Recall that just a few months ago, Chancellor Schultz of Germany was in uh, Beijing uh, seeking business deals with a plain load of business persons. President Macron, under fire, as we speak, is due in China in a few days. Likewise, on the diplomatic front, China brokered an entente between Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, which was thought to be difficult, if not impossible, to execute. Uh, you mentioned the bombing that took place by the U.S. forces in Syria, where Russia has just mediated an entente between Saudi Arabia and Syria, 
which is bringing the Damascus-based regime out of the cold. But perhaps the most disturbing event on this front was the hearing yesterday in Congress focused on TikTok, which raised all of these dark and ominous issues of racism, anti-Chinese hysteria. TikTok, of course, is the app that has captured the imagination, according to some, of 150 million people in this country. There were allegations that their data is not secure, that TikTok is an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. But in any case, it's uh, an indic indication of this new Cold War. And another indication of this new Cold War was the indictment by the International Criminal Court of President Putin, which did not go down very well, I'm afraid to say, in Africa, because the International Criminal Court has really discredited itself by concentrating unduly and heavily on leaders from Africa. And you mentioned the 20th anniversary of the ill-fated U.S. Uh, adventure, misadventure in Iraq, which did not have international authorization. Uh, Tony Blair and George Bush apparently do not have to worry about being indicted by the International Criminal Court as a result. But in any case, I think the headline from this week is the possibility of a new world order. Right. And um, I'm sure, Dr. Horn, for a lot of uh, young people, they would be quite shocked to find out that a lot of what they post on TikTok, the dance moves, uh, how to apply uh, certain makeup, you know, what products to buy or not buy from these influencers, uh, that they are under the control of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. I mean, there's no young person I know who is doesn't get on TikTok, who isn't posting or following on TikTok. So we'll have to see uh, how all of this goes. And, and Dr. Horn, just very quickly, we do have to go to station break. But um, I, I read that um, President Xi of China, that China also had proposed uh, some way out of the quagmire um, in Ukraine. Is that right? Have you anything you want to share with us about that? Well, there was a 12-point program <clears throat> issued by uh, President Xi. Supposedly, he was to have a phone call or a Zoom call with President Zelensky. Interestingly enough, President Zelensky has not turned down this 12-point proposal. However, Washington has, and I think that that probably does not uh, spell positive vibrations for this peace program. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. We're going to take a short station break. And when we uh, continue round two, our panelists will select the second story they will like to discuss. Um, we'll be right back. You want wouldn't want to miss any of that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There's a lot of that uh, going on right now 
in France, a major uprising going on there, and also an uprising going on in Italy, uh, I mean, in um, Israel, and of course, is an ongoing uprising uh, in the island nation of Haiti. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning, for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. We also want to welcome our um, listeners, Sojourner Truth listeners, on Pacifica flagship stations and affiliates across the country. And if you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our hashtag on Instagram and Twitter, at SoTrueRadio, our website, uh, SoTrueRadio.org. We are heard on SoundCloud nationally and internationally 24-7. We would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Idaho, SoundCloud listeners in Idaho. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Israel. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're now going to go to our second round. Laura Carlson, we'll start with you of the story that you have selected to share with us. Well, Margaret, here in Mexico, it's been big news, and it's actually been big news in the United States as well with a series of recent events that over the last few weeks, we've seen the dangerous and extremely cynical use of the tragic fentanyl overdose epidemic in the United States for partisan electoral politics. As we know, there were over 70,000 deaths in 2021, and for the period that went from March 2021 to March 2022, the estimate is that there were over 110,000 deaths from fentanyl and opioid overdoses in U.S. cities. So it's affecting the lives of, of literally tens of thousands of families. As a result, the Republicans in particular have decided that this is a perfect wedge issue. And the line is that the Mexican cartels are responsible for, quote, poisoning U.S. youth. They have now asked and proposed formally that President Joe Biden authorize military action against Mexican cartels. This was presented to the legislator by representatives Dan Crenshaw and Michael Walls. And they've also suggested, Lindsey Graham did this most recently in the Wednesday hearing of the Senate Appropriations Committee, that the cartels be designated um, terrorist organizations, foreign terrorist organizations. They're currently designated uh, transnational criminal organizations. And the terrorist organization would have bizarre implications. It's almost legally impossible to make that kind of a designation. In fact, the Republicans themselves are tripping over their wedge issues here because Crenshaw has said he's against this because it would actually justify asylum requests and they would um, they would be contradicting themselves on an inter- on the immigration issue. But what's wrong with this narrative, aside from the fact that it feeds racism, well, this is really the first most important thing, xenophobia, and it's created tremendous tension in the bilateral relationship with, of course, the threat of military force being picked up also politically in a pre-electoral period by Mexican President Lopez Obrador uh, as a violation of sovereignty, which, of course, is precisely correct. 
uh, also it's obscuring the real causes. There's a chain of production, transportation, wholesale, distribution, retail, sales, purchase, consumption, and the last four stages, which are the ones that have directly lethal consequences, they all take place within the United States. The $50 billion settlement with opioid manufacturers like Johnson & Johnson and the Israeli Teva, which manufactures fentanyl, and pharmacies is really an admission of guilt about the causes of the opioid crisis without having to face legal responsibility. And so now to say the whole problem originates in Mexico is hypocrisy at its most destructive form. And it also real, weakens the real efforts to deal with the fentanyl epidemic, which are that supply side has never worked in any case, trying to control supply instead of demand, instead of looking at the root causes, and it reinforces the failed war on drugs by emphasizing this military punitive measures that force it further un underground and create this double death machine by increasing support for military and arms manufacturers that are arming governments and cartels alike through illegal smuggling and promoting these false solutions that allow the epidemic to continue. So I wanted to raise this because it's vitally important to expose these lies about Mexico being the culprit before they lead to more war and more overdose deaths in the United States. Wow, um, just that's quite something, not getting uh, much coverage at all of uh, the, the issues you just raised, uh, Laura Carlson. So thank you uh, for enlightening us to what's going on there. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, what have you chosen for your second round well, story? Well, I've chosen the, uh, the classified employees strike uh, in uh, LA Unified Schools, which of course I'm intimately involved with. And I think we're going to be seeing more of this kind of action because here's the situation uh, that has been true for schools, public schools, not only in California, but around the country. Prolonged decades of underfunding has led to the fact that there is really not a lot of money for the kinds of living wages, and I believe in living wages, not minimum wages, that are necessary. Right now in Los Angeles County, it probably takes about $30,000 a year to barely get by, barely get by, and that's for a single, single adult. Probably takes more like Fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year if you have a couple of adults and children. We get nowhere near that with classified employees, and we never have. And they're only uh, hired for nine months of the year, which is how long schools are on. So, like uh, certificated employees, teachers who get no income for three months, it means that their nine-month salary has to last three months, which is really not very easy even for teachers and counselors and administrators who make significantly more than most of our classified people. So here's part of the problem. You have a very, very expensive place to live. Housing costs are out of sight in Los Angeles City and County. And you have a situation in which the ability of any school district to significantly raise wages and salaries over a long period of time is difficult because a lot of what people point to right now is the money that is one-time money 
that districts got from COVID relief, from the relief for the pandemic. So people look at budgets like LA Unified and see, oh my God, you've got almost $5 billion left in your budget. Why, of course you could do anything we want. Give us 30%, give us 20%, give us more hours, give us more this, all of which we would love to do. I wanna be very clear about this. There is no desire in LA Unified's board or its administration to do anything but to pay people the most we possibly can without endangering the longevity of the district's uh, financial condition. So here's the dilemma. You've got a union that has for many years, for many decades, been ignored uh, in, in, by this district. And I believe that's the case. For example, when I came back on the board in 2019, I was visiting schools in August and September, and it was really hot. And I would go into where food service workers, the cafeteria workers are actually making or reheating, depending on how they get their meals, in rooms without air conditioning. Those rooms were about 120 degrees. I brought in a thermometer to one school. That's been going on for years. Why hasn't anybody ever said that it's time to air condition all the places that we have food workers heating up food? Well, we've done that now. We didn't do that during the strike. We did that before the strike. But why didn't anybody raise it before? I had to raise it at 10 or 12 meetings publicly saying we got to do something about this before we were finally able to put $30 million to begin those uh, air conditioning. And we're going to put in as much money as it takes to take care of that air conditioning. But why wasn't that done years ago? This has always been hot in the summer in California. That's not news. Maybe it's hotter longer now, but it's always been hot. But it was because nobody cared about the four-hour employees who make that food. They were low-income, four-hour employees, and there was nobody who seemed to care enough to get that done. Those are the kinds of things that we had to deal with. We're not only dealing with just the current problems, we're dealing with decades of neglect to the needs of these folks. For example, starting July 1st in LA Unified, all bus drivers will have eight-hour schedules. Well, that should have happened years ago. We have lots and lots of kids that we transport every day. We're finally, we're gonna do something now that's never been done before, never been done before that I can find. And that is four hour employees in our district will get full health benefits for themselves and their families. Well, that should have happened long ago. Why? Because these people live not four hours a day, they live 24 hours a day. And their health, particularly if they're cafeteria workers or custodians is rather important to the health and safety of everybody at schools. So what makes this strike different than others? First of all, it wasn't a wage strike. Under California law, you can't strike until you've completed collective bargaining. And SEIU was reluctant to come to the table for some time. At least uh, some of us thought so. On the other hand, they believed that they had made their requirement, which is 30% over four years, and that's it. Well, so that created a situation in which we weren't even talking to each other. So. As a result of that, you can't go on strike unless you're involved in negotiations or impasse. So what happens instead is, is that uh, they call it an unfair labor practice strike, which means that they have claimed that we have had uh, unfair labor practices. Well, I, I don't wanna comment on that. 
uh, but that strike is being held, held by our Public Employee Relations Board, a state agency, and we'll find out more about that later. The good news is everybody is talking now. The good news is Mayor Karen Bass, recently elected here in Los Angeles, long ago began communicating with everybody uh, on both sides, saying it is time to get this taken care of. She has been outstanding. I want to give her public comment to thanking her for taking this on so early in her administration. But it will end. The strike is over. They picked three days, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. School is open today. Everybody's back at school. Uh, fewer teachers than normal have uh, requested substitutes for a Friday. But that was the other big difference. When the United Teachers Los Angeles decided to support the strike of the um, classified employees, which was a first time for them, I believe, and if it, I'm wrong, I, I hope to be corrected, that meant that schools could not remain open. And that, in, that emboldened the strike. That made the strike be much more successful, in my opinion, because really you can't have schools if you don't have either classified employees or certificated employees in the schools. So I would say to you that LA Unified is a predictor of what's coming because a whole lot of people who were out of work during the pandemic and came back realized how little they were being paid, realized how difficult the working conditions were in their jobs. And you're going to see whether they are in unions or not in unions, a lot more activity, I believe, in this country around the low-wage workers saying, hey, enough is enough. It's time for you to realize that we have to live, and living on 12 or 16 or $18 an hour is not going to do it. I believe we will be up to probably close to $25 an hour for the lowest paid workers. But even that on four hours a day is not going to do it. Thank goodness the, uh, we will also be granting them full family health care, which I think will be a very big, big, big change for an awful lot of people working in our school district. But this has been an extraordinary experience for the community, and it has met with some mostly positive uh, support by parents and family members, though I will say that there were an increasing number of people who did not believe that they needed to do a three-day strike. But that's so how it is. I will say, though, it's a predictor of the future, not just of school districts, but school districts will be especially hard hit because their low-paid employees have to wait for state money to decide what exactly they can do. And when you have a lot of one-time money, you look rich, but you cannot pay for wage increases that go on continuously forever with one-time money, and that's been the dilemma. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us, uh, Jackie Goldberg, because, you know, reading the articles, et cetera, you have no idea of the intricacies of, of what is really going on. Uh, just one quick thing, though, for our listeners. Could you, you mentioned people who do lunches, um, heat lunches, et cetera, and bus drivers. Are there any others that are, a quote-unquote classified employees? Oh, yes. Quite, LA, yeah. quite a number, quite a number. So, for example, okay. teaching assistants and teacher aides, uh, custodial workers, building and okay. grounds workers, gardeners, uh, the right. people who maintain, uh, the, uh, maintain the buildings, the people who go in and, and sanitize for COVID. All of these are classified workers. We did add hours to the uh, special ed aides, and we did add hours uh, to bus drivers, 
Uh, we can't out add hours to cafeteria workers because there's no work to do besides yeah. four hours. So we're trying to increase their wages dramatically so that they can uh, hopefully get by on even a half-time uh, salary. But yes, there are lots and lots of them. There are 30,000 classified employees in LA Unified and 35,000 right. certificated. So there are almost as many people who are not teachers and counselors as there are teachers and counselors in schools. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And I'm sure a lot of people around the nation who are in education and school districts are uh, keeping an eye on what's going on in Los Angeles. I think the second largest school district in the nation. Uh, Dr. Horn, you're going to have the last word. We've had uh, coverage for two stories today. Perhaps we'll do a similar round next week <laughs> to make up for it. But uh, Dr. Horn, um, the selection for your second round here story. Well, Donald J. Trump is due in Waco, Texas tomorrow to kick off his presidential campaign for 2024. Waco, Texas is a shrine for the ultra right. Recall that 30 odd years ago, there was a shootout between the Branch Davidian religious formation and FBI and other government agents. And it was adopted by Timothy McVeigh, who was involved in the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, adopted by Alex Jones, the pundit and talk show blabber. And I don't think that the newspaper here in Houston is wrong when they analogize Mr. Trump's visit to Waco tomorrow with Ronald Wilson Reagan kicking off his 1980 presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers were slain by the authorities and the Ku Klux Klan. It's just that dangerous and just that ominous. Mr. Trump is trying to become president so that he can avoid jail. He's facing a case in Manhattan from the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, with regard to hush money to the adult film actress, uh, Stormy Daniels, who he says he did not have an affair with, she claims otherwise. In Georgia, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County prosecutor, who by the way happens to be the daughter of the founder of the LA Black Panthers, uh, John Floyd, is has convened a grand jury looking into his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. In return, the Georgia legislature is seeking to weaken the prosecutorial powers of Fannie Willis and other Georgia prosecutors, just like in Washington, the Republican House is seeking to investigate Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney. I don't think it's coincidental that both Bragg and Willis happen to be Black, but in Washington as well, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor appointed by the attorney general, is investigating Mr. Trump for the documents that he apparently had purloined and stored away in closets in Mar-a-Lago. In the meantime, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, his main challenger, has been flip-flopping with regard to Ukraine. Earlier in this week, he claimed that uh, it was a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine, but then he came under fire and now is saying that Mr. Putin is a war criminal who should be pursued. The New York Times pointed out this morning that uh, Mr. DeSantis has only made foreign trips to Israel during his time as governor. 
which does not necessarily bode well for the Palestinians or world peace for that matter, Mr. Trump, of course, has unleashed a barrage of insults and defaming words against Mr. DeSantis, claiming that he might be gay, uh, claiming that uh, he might be have groomed uh, teenage girls when he was a high school teacher. A Wall Street Journal uh, columnist has suggested that Mr. DeSantis might be on the spectrum for autism, uh, for example. So this campaign is already heated up, even though we're about, what, 18 months away or so from the new president, if there is to be a new president. Now, Mr. Trump, has also forced Mr. DeSantis, at least earlier this week, to waffle and wobble on Ukraine. Mr. Trump, like many, wants to focus exclusively and solely on the People's Republic of China and basically give Russia a pass with regard to the Ukraine. The Democrats apparently want to focus both on Russia and China, and this has led to a very disturbing trend that I've noticed in the anti-war movement in the European Union. That is to say, increasingly, I've noticed that there are many who consider themselves to be on the left. They feel that with regard to Europe, at least, and with regard to war, that Mr. Trump might be the lesser of two evils <laughs> compared to the Democrats. In other words, they turned on its head the view of the U.S. left, which generally sees the Democrats as the lesser of two evils. Uh, yeah. This does not necessarily bode well. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. I think perhaps um, we will pick some of this up with you all selecting stories on our next roundtable uh, next week. Laura, I know you wanted to get to the anniversary of the war. We didn't get to that today, but we, we certainly can do that another time. Another fascinating roundtable. Thank each and every one of you. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Jose Benavides, our board op today, Gary Baca. If you like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Thank you for listening and stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.